0: chapter 6 of running the blockade by thomas e taylor this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 6 the rest of the banshee number 1's career breakdown of the banshee's machinery heavily peppered by gunboats the help of signal lights a change of tactics an awkward alternative hailed by a cruiser a slanging match grape and canister THE banshee ON FIRE, SHIPPING A FRESH CARGO, A CARELESS LOOKOUT MAN, PURSUED BY THE JAMES ADGER, A DING-DONG RACE, CARGO THROWN OVERBOARD, A STOWAWAY COMES TO LIGHT, A CRUCIAL MOMENT, THE JAMES ADGER RELINQUISHES HER PURSUIT, OUR LAST COAL USED, SECURE IN BRITISH TERRITORY, NEGOTIATIONS FOR COAL, A DEMORALIZED CREW, safe in nassau end of the banshee's career profit of blockade running to give in every detail every trip of the banshee would be wearisome i made in her seven more in all each one of which had its uh, peculiar excitement looking back it seems nothing short of a miracle that ill-constructed and ill-engined as she was she so long escaped the numerous dangers to which she was exposed I well remember on our second run in an accident which no one could have foreseen, and which came within an ace of ending her career. After a busy time discharging our cargo and getting cold and loaded in order to save a trip before the moon grew too much, we made another start, and after a rough passage reached within striking distance of our port. It was a very dark but calm night. We had made out several blockaders and safely eluded them when suddenly a tearing and rending of wood was heard and splinters from our port paddle-box fell in all directions. The engines were stopped at once. It was then discovered that one of the paddle-floats, which were made of steel, had split, causing the broken part to come violently in contact with the paddle-box at each revolution. There was nothing for it but to stop and attempt to unscrew the damaged float. A sail was placed round the paddle-box, and two of the engineers were lowered down and commenced work. Not many minutes elapsed before a cruiser hove in sight, and we made certain we had been discovered. Although she came on until she was not more than a hundred yards away on our beam, curious to state she never saw us. But, uh, after lying motionless, much to our relief she steamed away. And, oh, how pleasant it was to hear that float drop into the water! We felt our way toward the bar and, although we were heavily peppered by two gunboats which were lying close in, we escaped untouched, and soon had our signal lights set for going over the bar. These signal lights were, of course, a great assistance, but latterly the northerners used to place launches close in, and when those in charge saw the lights exhibited, they signaled to the blockaders, who immediately commenced shelling the bar, rendering it very unpleasant for us, so much so that we generally preferred to find our way over it without lights, as the lesser risk of the two. It was a custom for each steamer to carry a Confederate signalman, who by means of a code would communicate with the shore in the daytime with flags at night by flashes from lamps. If the leading lights were required, the pilots in the fort set two lights, which when in line led us through deep water over the bar. This was an average run in, but more exciting ones were to follow. In the early stages of blockade running, such as those I have mentioned, we used to go well to the northward and make the coast some fifteen or twenty miles above Fort Fisher, thus going round the fleet instead of through it. By this means we were the better enabled to strike the coast unobserved, steaming quietly down just outside the surf, until we arrived close to Fort Fisher, where we had to go somewhat to seaward, in order to avoid a certain shoal, called the North Breaker although this generally brought us into close contact with the blockaders still we knew exactly where we were as regards the bar subsequently the northerners stopped this manoeuvre as we found to our peril one very dark night i think it was either on the fourth or fifth trip of the banshee we made the land about twelve miles above fort fisher and were creeping quietly down as usual when all at once we made a cruiser out lying on our port bow and slowly moving about two hundred yards from the shore. It was a question of going inside or outside her. If we went outside, she was certain to see us, and would chase us into the very jaws of the fleet. As we had very little steam up, we chose the former alternative, hoping to pass unobserved between the cruiser and the shore, aided by the dark background of the latter. It was an exciting moment we got almost abreast of her as we thought unobserved and success seemed within our grasp till we saw her move in toward us and heard her hail us as we came on stop that steamer or i will sink you old Steele growled out that we hadn't time to stop and shouted down the engine-room tube to erskine to pile on the coals as concealment was no longer of any use our friend which we afterwards found out was the niphon opened fire as fast as she could, and sheered close into us, so close that her boarders were called away twice, and a slanging match went on between us, like that sometimes to be heard between two penny steamboat captains on the Thames. She closed the dispute by shooting away our foremast, exploding a shell in our bunkers, and, when we began to leave her astern, by treating us to grape and canister. It was a miracle that no one was killed, but the crew were all lying flat on the deck except the steersman and at one time i fear he did the same for as pilot burrow suddenly cried my god mr taylor look there i saw our boat heading right into the surf so jumping from the bridge i ran aft and found the helmsman on his stomach i rushed at the wheel and got two or three spokes out of it which hauled her head off the land but it was a close shave two miles further on we picked up another cruiser which tried to treat us in a similar manner but as we had plenty of steam we soon left her a little farther we came across a large side-wheel boat which tried to run us down missing us only by a few yards after that after that we were unmolested and arrived in safe warmly congratulated by lamb who thought from the violent cannonade that we must certainly have been sunk not more than one man out of a hundred would have brought a boat through as steele did that night the other ninety-nine would have run her ashore after this exciting run-in our first business was to repair damages and ship our cargo on board but at the last moment when she was completely loaded with steam up and all ready for a start we nearly lost the banshee by fire steele and i were busy settling things in the office on shore when all at once on looking out of the window i saw volumes of smoke coming from her deck cargo of cotton we jumped into a boat but by the time we got alongside she was one sheet of flame it looked like a hopeless case steel however gave immediate orders to get the steam hose at work breast her off from the wharf and to let go anchor in midstream thus bringing her head to tide but stern to wind the fire being all forward made it difficult to reach the forecastle so as to let go the anchor but our good friend halpin who then commanded a blockade runner called the eugenie gallantly came to our assistance at the risk of his life boarded us forward and knocked out the cutter which held the chain cable but not before his clothes were on fire it was a sight to see him take a header into the river causing the water to hiss again he undoubtedly saved our ship that day poor halpin i have lately read of his death he was as fine and generous-hearted a man as ever lived and afterwards as successful at cable-laying as blockade-running by dint of hard work we got the fire under and a tough job it was fighting with ignited turpentine of which we had several barrels on deck and blazing cotton we found that, with the exception of having our turtle-back destroyed and our deck bulwarks and new foremast charred, she had not received much serious damage, and after shipping a fresh deck cargo we went to sea next night and crossed to Nassau, where they were astonished to see the plight we were in, thinking we had had a fire at sea. It was, I think, on our sixth trip out in the little banshee, when soon after daylight we got safely through the fleet and I was lying on a cotton bale aft that Erskine, the chief engineer, suddenly exclaimed, Mr. Taylor, look astern. I looked, and not four miles from us I saw a large side-wheeled cruiser, with square sails set, coming down on us hand over fist. This was an instance of gross carelessness on the part of the lookout man at the masthead. He turned out to be an American whom we had shipped in Nassau on the previous trip, and about whom both Steele and I, Had our private suspicions. At such a critical moment as the approach of daylight, the chief officer should have chosen a picked man for the lookout. After this, we were more careful. Either the chief officer or I myself, when on board, made it a point to occupy this post at that particular hour. erskine rushed to the engine-room, and in a few moments, volumes of smoke issuing from our funnels showed that we were getting up all the steam we could almost too late, as with the freshening breeze, the chaser which we afterwards found out to be the well-known James Adger, a boat subsequently sent to cruise in search of the Alabama, so rapidly overhauled us that we could distinctly see the officers in uniform as they stood on the bridge, each one doubtless counting his share of the prize money to which he would soon become entitled. This will never do, said Steele, who, although it put us off our course to Nassau, ordered the helm to be altered so as to bring us up to the wind. We then soon had the satisfaction of seeing our enemy obliged to take in sail after sail and a ding-dong race of the most exciting nature right in the wind's eye commenced the freshening breeze and rising sea now seemed to increase the odds against our the smaller boat and so critical did matters become and so certain did capture appear that i divided between murray einsley who was a passenger on this trip Steele, and myself sixty sovereigns which i had on board determined that when captured we wouldn't be penniless. As the weather grew worse, we found ourselves obliged to throw overboard our deck cargo in order to lighten the boat. Well, this was done as quickly as possible. Heartbreaking, though it was, to see valuable bales, worth from fifty to sixty pounds apiece, bobbing about on the waves. To me, more especially, did this come home, for my little private venture of ten bales of sea-island cotton had to go first, a dead loss of eight hundred pounds or more. A fresh cause of excitement now arose. In clearing out these very bales, which were in a half-finished deck-cabin, an unfortunate stowaway came to light, a runaway slave, who must have been standing wedged between two bales for at least forty-eight hours, and with three feet of whom I had unconsciously been sleeping on the cotton bales during the last two nights before putting to sea. He received a great ovation on our landing him at Nassau, though his freedom cost us four thousand dollars on our return to Wilmington. Uh, this being what he was valued at. Its escape was an unusual one, for before leaving port the hold and closed-up spaces were always fumigated to such an extent as to have brought out or suffocated anyone in hiding, but this being an open-deck cabin the precaution was impossible. Having got rid of our deck cargo we slowly but steadily began to gain in the race, It was an extraordinary sight to see our gallant little vessel at times almost submerged by green seas, sweeping her fore and aft, and the James Adger, a vessel of two thousand tons, taking headers into the huge waves. Yet neither of us for a moment slackening speed. Of course we should have thought madness under ordinary circumstances. Murray Ainslie stood with his sextant, taking angles, and reporting now one, now the other, vessel getting the best of it. Suddenly a fresh danger arose from the bearings of the engines becoming heated owing to the enormous strain put upon them erskine said it was absolutely imperative to stop for a short time but by dint of loosening the bearings and applying all the salad oil procurable mixed with gunpowder they were gradually got into working order again all in the engine room having assisted in the most energetic manner at this critical moment the chase went on for fifteen weary hours the longest hours i think i ever spent until nightfall when we saw our friend then only about five miles astern turn round and relinquish her pursuit we heard afterwards that her stokers were dead beat for some time we pursued our course thinking this might be only a ruse on their part and then held a council of war as to our next move Steele and erskine were for making bermuda as we had been chased a hundred and fifty miles in that direction and both feared our coal would not hold out for us to reach Nassau. It was, however, very necessary that I should go to the latter place, as I was expecting two new steamers out from England, so we decided to make the attempt. We only succeeded in reaching land at all by a very close shave. At the end of the third day we saw our last coal used. Mainmast, bulwarks, deck cabin, and every available bit of wood supplemented by cotton and turpentine as fuel only just carried us into one of the northeast keys of the bahamas about sixty miles from nassau into which we absolutely crawled the engines working almost on a vacuum we had not anchored there more than two hours when we saw a northern cruiser steam slowly past evidently eyeing us greedily but we were safe in british territory and even the audacious cruiser dare not take us as a prize The difficulty of procuring the necessary fuel in order to take us to Nassau now presented itself. Fortunately, we spied out a schooner in the neighborhood with whom we communicated, and after some negotiations I arranged that she should take Murray Ainslie and myself to our destination and bring back a cargo of coal. We started with a fair wind, but before long this had changed to a regular hurricane, during which it was impossible to keep on any sail, and the crew became terrified and helpless. "'thereby very nearly letting us drift on to the rocks near Abaco Lighthouse. Oh, "'It was an awful night, the lightning vivid in the, the coastline not many yards away. "'The crew became more and more demoralized, "'and, when the weather moderated, refused to proceed. "'This new difficulty was only overcome by Murray Ainslie and myself producing our revolvers. "'Then, partly by threats and partly by promised bribes, "'we prevailed on them to think better of their resolve.' utterly wearied out having had no sleep to speak of for one week and having lived in our sea-boots since we made our first start from wilmington my feet were so swollen that the boots had to be cut off and sleeping-draughts at first were powerless to restore the lost faculty we finally arrived in safety the schooner was dispatched back with coal and three days later i had the satisfaction of seeing the banshee after these hair-breadth escapes steam safely in though looking considerably dilapidated, lucky in having lost only our deck cargo, which represented a good half or more of what she started with. This chase, which lasted fifteen hours and covered nearly two hundred miles, was considered one of the most notable incidents connected with blockade running during the war, and we heard a good deal about it afterwards. At the time we had been struck by the fact of the James Adger not opening fire on us when so close the explanation was that she had no bow chasers and was so certain of capturing us eventually that she did not think it worth while to yaw and fire her broadside guns and as the weather was so bad she did not care to cast them loose this is the last trip i made in the banshee on which anything of note occurred she made eight round trips in all and i then left her she was captured on the ninth after another long chase off cape hatteras captain and crew being taken to fort lafayette where they were detained for about eight months as prisoners in a casemate badly fed and clothed and of course overcrowded Steele spent some weeks in ludlow street jail when he was released he found to his delight that another boat had been built expressly for him which was christened banshee number no. two Some idea of the vast profits accruing from blockade running at this time can be gathered from the fact that, notwithstanding the total loss of the Banshee by capture, she earned sufficient on the eight successful round trips which she made to pay her shareholders seven hundred percent on their investment. Her captors turned her into a gunboat, and we heard afterwards that she had proved anything but a success, being much too tender moreover her engines as we knew were very hard to manipulate so much so that on one occasion it was found impossible to stop her and she ran right into the jetty of the naval yard at washington chapter six